Hey, Rosemary, we left Joel out in the cold somewhere. He was supposed to be traveling from northern Wisconsin to Texas, but we can't seem to, to find him anywhere. I, I'm guessing maybe back in the s- snow. Uh, so it's just us two this week, which is super awesome uh, because we really get to do a show, just the two of us anymore. So what do you what do you have on the list this week? Well, we've got the recent auctions for um, offshore wind in California. So it's going to be floating offshore wind. And then we have a microwave drilling technique to make deeper holes for geothermal power. Then we have uh, some discussion about whales off the coast of Massachusetts and how wind turbines can affect the zooplankton. And then we had a thundersnow apocalypse off of Lake Ontario recently, and researchers up there have instrumented that whole area and have recorded lightning strikes that happened to wind turbines. So there's going to be a lot of good information coming out of there. And then I have an interview, interview with Phil Totaro of Intel Store when we talk about PPAs of onshore wind and the operational risks involved on some really low PPA prices that some of these operators are, are have in place. So it's a really interesting episode. Stay tuned. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with Australian renewables guru, Rosemary Barnes. Joel Saxon is out in the field doing some good work and we'll be back next week. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Rosemary, we just finished the California auction for all those offshore plots. There were actually five plots uh, that were up for bid. They had about f- a little over 40 different companies that were going to were able to bid. They went through a little process to get vetted. So there was like 43 of them that were vetted to go. And they were off- auctioning off about 370,000 acres uh, sort of in central and northern California. The the plot up north is really close to Oregon, actually, so it's pretty far north. And they think they're going to generate 4.6 gigawatts off these sites, so that's a lot of power. It's like a million and a half homes they're going to power. Well, uh, based on predictions, I think they were thinking it was going to go well over a billion dollars in bids, but it didn't get there. It went to $757 million, which is roughly $2,000 an acre. And the bite auction on the East Coast was about $4 billion, and that turned out to be about $8,000 an acre. So the waters off the coast of California were about a quarter of the price of the ones off the East Coast, which I guess sort of makes sense just because it's floating California versus fixed bottom uh, New York. So that was an interesting uh, bidding process, Rosemary. It went on for a day and a half, almost two days, before the final settled out. There were only about seven to eight initial bidders out of the 43, and that whittled down to five at the end. Uh, so it, it didn't. there weren't a lot of bidders. In the, in the bidding rounds, Joel and I were going back and forth on Slack about it. The bidding went like, you know, $16 million this round, $32 million next round. So it was making these sort of massive jumps in, in millions of dollars until they got to, they're roughly uh, $100 million, a little over $100 million a plot. So that's that's a good bit of money. Does I, I, I don't know what happens down in Australia. Do you, 
do you do is a similar thing down there? Because I know Europe hates that bid for for plots like this. Um, we, we're not ready for that yet in Australia, and I don't know how it's going to happen. Probably it, it hasn't been decided how it's going to happen. We're in this weird kind of process where, you know, the offshore wind in Australia, it's been pushed by companies, um, you know, that have started, you know, trying to develop a, a project there. Um, and so, you know, there's individual companies and one in particular, Star of the South, they have done a ton of work to try and bring the government, you know, to the place they need to be to be able to, you know, get permits to, you know, start a, a wind farm, but they don't have permission <laughs> to use that that area. So it would be pretty strange if after mm. all this work that they have done assessing the resource and, you know, um, <laughs> teaching the government what they need to do or set in place to be able to, you know, get their environmental and everything else um, assessments underway, it would be pretty funny if it, at the end of that they just went to an open auction and they lost. That would be quite strange. So uh, I would be a bit surprised if that's how it happens here, but I guess there needs to be some sort of process. Yeah, it's well, I'm not sure the American process is the best process. It, it did seem to take quite a while and it didn't have a lot of activity. Yeah, and I think when we all watched the one on the the East Coast auction, it seemed like they paid too much. And I think with everything that has been coming out about, um, you know, we've been following um, advances in the wake um, persistence, you know, how far the, the wake of an upstream wind farm will affect right. a downstream one. And I don't know, I, I do tend to think that uh, some of the winners of, of that, of those auctions might regret the amount that they paid. So I think, yeah, so California was a quarter of the price. Like you say, it um, takes into account the fact that you've, you've got to put floating um, offshore wind there, which is a very new technology. Um, and not, and add to that the fact that, you know, probably the East Coast one was overpaid. And I think that that explains the the difference. I bet if they did another one over in a similar area to the ones around um, New York that you would see lower prices this time too. I mean, also the economic outlook is just a, a lot different now than it was a, a year or two ago. So uh, that would also have oh, an yeah. effect. A year yeah. ago. Well, the, 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 uh, you know, some of the winners here uh, of the offshore California auction, it was RWE. Equinor and Venergy, and then there's two kind of conglomerates here: uh, California North Floating, which is, uh, I think, EDP Renewables and Engie. I think were the two there. I have to look that one back up again. Everybody can just Google it. And the other one was California, or, or sorry, Central California Offshore Wind LLC. So there are two LLCs involved, which just um, was interesting. Joel and I were going back and forth just to figure out who everybody was and where they were from. There was not an American company in the bidding, weirdly enough. Uh, Invenergy was is based in Chicago, but it's owned by a Canadian company, and uh, but mostly owned by a Canadian company up in Quebec, it sounded like. So there wasn't a, a huge American investor there, which I, I guess makes sense because all the knowledge about offshore is not in America, that's for sure. So it makes sense for... Uh, companies that know what they're doing to, to bid on these projects. And maybe that's why uh, it ended up the way that it did, because the expert companies were the ones that were able to maybe secure contracts with OEMs on terms of making turbines. Uh, it, 
there seems like your supply chain would be a really big driver here, whether you're going to bid or not. If you could somehow talk to a GE, talk to a Vestas, talk to a Siemens Gamesa and say, hey, we're going to bid on this project. Are you in? I have a hard time thinking Siemens Gamesa or GE is going to sign up for 20 different companies to say, yeah, we're in. I think they're going to have a subset. Same thing for cables, same thing for uh, the floating pylons, whatever they're going to do. Don't you think that's probably part of the issue is how limited the number of uh, bidders, just supply chain? Yeah, I think supply chain, but also just the, the risk. There's only three, maybe four now floating offshore wind farms that exist in the world. And I think three quarters of those are Equinor's. Right. Um, so, or well, yeah, Equinor has a, a partial right. stake at least. <laughs> So no surprise to see them on there. And then everybody else, um, yeah, they they got to learn through this project. So uh, it's hard to <laughs> hard to pay a, a lot for the right to, you know, just try something out and see if it's going to work. Um, yeah. So uh, on the one hand, you know, there's nothing like brand new being used in these. You've got existing wind turbines you've got a lot of knowledge of floating platforms from oil and gas and you know the engineering involved is fairly straightforward so whilst it's never been done before you would be pretty confident that you could you know foresee most of the problems that you'd have and um you know design around them but on the other hand uh, you know you always attempt to you know think through every problem that might happen and um and make a good design first time, but it doesn't work out that way. It is different enough that, you know, there's going to be surprises in, yeah, maybe it's not such a big issue to make a wind turbine that will, you know, stay upright, um, but will it generate the power that's expected, you know, just small um, differences in angle. If it's if it's bobbing around, it could have a, a bigger than expected um, effect on the power production, but also on the life of the components. If the, the loads are very different to the way that they have been designed and operated in the right. past, these turbines. So I think there is a fair amount of uncertainty there. And I, I guess people are trying to limit the, the size of their, their losses. It's a, a huge, huge potential industry in the future, but um, how much advantage is there for being the, the early leader? I'm not sure because mostly you should just be able to see what works yeah. for other people and copy it because you're not going to be able to patent the use of a platform or a structure that was used for decades in offshore oil and gas you're not going to just because you're using it for a wind turbine you won't be able to patent that and nobody else can do it so you can just take a look at at <laughs> all of Ecuador's mm-hmm. offloading offshore wind farms and see see what direction they're going and and just be like okay well we don't need to make the first three things that didn't really work for them we'll just go with the the fourth one that <laughs> that's providing you know reliable base for for the turbines so yeah it'll be interesting to see see how it goes it will be surely at least another decade before this kind of um technology is competing on its own except for in very specific places and california is one of those places that has specific circumstances you know like they really really want their renewables and this resource um the winds are higher in the afternoon um and that's when people are using electricity so you know it's in contrast to solar which peaks in the middle of the day 
um, and it's not very well aligned with when people are using it. So, yes, solar is much, 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 much cheaper right. than floating offshore wind. But on the other hand, electricity prices are usually close to zero or even negative um, in places where there's a lot of solar in the grid on a, a sunny day. So I think that you'll get much higher value from the floating offshore wind farms. So remains to be seen how profitable that will be overall. Lots of pros, lots of cons. Very interesting. Yeah, I think yeah, it's true. I, I think California hasn't made it easy for the developers. There's some, Phil Totaro had posted a couple of items on LinkedIn and I was watching and he was discussing some unknowns about where the transmission cables are going to hit shore that hasn't been really well defined yet and how it's going to integrate integrate with uh, the California grid, which it hasn't been defined yet. And the utility operator in California is not making any motions to buy the energy mm. yet. There's a lot of unknowns there. Those can be very expensive. And we were just talking also before the show about the names of some of these companies that were bidding California North floating and central California offshore wind. They defined that the, what they were going to bid on in the name of the company. So when you saw that company bid, you know, what they were going to bid on the North part or the central part of those, of those auctions. So it just seems weird, right? I mean, do you show you show your hand like that at an auction? Is that, is that the best way to do that? Cause it seems like a really bad James Bond uh, episode where, you know, James Bond always goes to an auction. He's going to buy a Fabergé egg or something and he's going to take it away from the villain. And that always goes sideways because he declares what he's going to do while he walks into the room. And it's, so it's always been my tendency, like if I go into an auction, not, not to tell anybody what I'm bidding on, <laughs> they seem to take the big bold move and to name their companies like James Bond does mm. when he walks into a room. He just says, I'm going to bid on that and I'm going to walk out of here with that. I guess it's a move. It yeah, worked. they succeeded. They scared off anybody they else. They named what they're going to bid for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of a funny thing. Like, oh, the name is what they purchased. Well, I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Why not? I did think it was interesting that they haven't um, yet got the transmission in place that they need to connect to these wind farms because that's yeah, the difference no. with the the projects that I'm hearing about in Australia. Basically, the very first thing that they do is find a coal power plant, a huge coal power plant that's going to retire soon. I mean, they're all going to retire soon. Um, that's near the coast sure. where the is a good offshore wind resource nearby. Um, and so that means that they don't have to, don't have to do much other than get, you know, like from the two, from the, the beach to the, the power plant where there's already really, really huge, good, big transmission in place. Um, so yeah, what a huge uncertainty for the people that have, you know, put up millions of, um, hundreds of millions <laughs> of dollars, for a resource that yeah. they don't know how, yes. if they don't know whether they're going to have to pay for that transmission themselves or not. So, I mean, that would massively affect the value, right? And um, yeah, and they don't know who's going to, if, if they're going to have to, you know, find customers or if that's going to be, you know, assisted by the government. So yeah, really unusual to not have those big details sorted before the auction, in my opinion, but I guess everyone's just really keen to get in there. Well, I, I guess it does change the price, right? That's what mm. happened. Mm. It changed the value of the of the asset. Looks like it significantly. Mm. 
Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. Rosemary, in my hour of free time this week, and I literally had an hour of free time this week, it's just, I don't know why everything's so crazy in December, but this December is nuts. Well, I didn't have a baby. You had a baby, so I, I can't really <laughs> complain. My time is probably a little more free than yours at the moment. Uh, but I was watching the, there was a, a national offshore winds R&D conference that was held in Northeastern University, which is in Boston. <laughs> and they had a bunch of researchers come in and, and explain some of the projects they're working on. And one of them was talking about whales. And there's a certain kind of whale that runs along the East Coast. It's called the right whale. And the right whale was fished heavily in the 1800s because it produced or yields a lot of oil. So a lot of the oil burning light candle, candles or, or, or oil lamps that they had on the East Coast were burning whale oil. Well, the right whale was named a right whale because when you killed it, it floated. So you could get to the, <laughs> you could get to the oil <laughs> before it sunk. Uh, so they were heavily hunted, heavily hunted. And there's about 350 of these whales left. And because maybe I'm wrong here, but I think my animal knowledge goes into this. The bigger the animal, the longer the sort of the gestation time to have new have calves is. So it takes a long time to rebuild that population base, kind of like elephants, right? Versus rabbits. There's, there's your difference. Uh, so it takes a long time to build that population back up. And they've been having like uh, three to eight calves born a year. So it's not really growing that fast. So they're super concerned about these right whales and the right whales run up along the coastline and eat all the, the, the uh, shrimp and things that are floating around in there. Okay. So there's concern now with offshore wind turbines because as we've been talking about uh, more recently, the wakes off the wind turbines not only disturb the air, but they disturb the water behind it. And there's concern, and there's been some research, that when the water gets churned by these wakes, that it may change the animal life or the zoology in the water. So the, uh, the people that are assigned to, to watch the fish and the mammals in the waters are starting to be concerned about this, and they're, and they're putting buffer zones in. In fact, uh, they're talking about a 20-kilometer buffer zone. Uh, off the coast of Massachusetts to the edge of the wind turbines and trying to keep that a, a, a whale zone almost. And this is the first that I've heard of it. And I, I know there's been concerns about whales and other sea life around that area, but this is the first time I had someone explain what the issue was. And I don't, we don't know that much about what wind turbines do to the water behind the wind turbines yet, do we? No, I, I well, I haven't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a marine biologist though. So, uh, 
it is interesting and definitely, you know, it sounds plausible that that would be a problem and should be studied. I'm just always surprised why it's always in the US where these issues get raised when Europe has had, you know, offshore wind for so long. And I know that their waters are more shallow. They likely don't have this specific whale there. They do have other other whales and other um, marine life, obviously. But Europe does tend to have um, very strict environmental regulations. And I know that if you, you know, you want to put in yes. a, a wind farm yeah. in Europe, then you're going to need like a, you know, like a large dining table size of, <laughs> of documentation to go along with it. So it just surprises me <laughs> yes. that no European ever thought to look at this problem. And I never, the articles, I don't know, I, maybe it's an American thing, but they never address that really obvious issue in my mind. Like, has this been studied in Europe? They never say if it has or, or hasn't. Um, so I, I guess I could find that out for myself with a, a few minutes of research, but I didn't I didn't do it. I didn't do that few minutes. So I, I don't I don't know if that's been studied before. But I would assume that it could be studied pretty pretty promptly, you know, within a few years. It's gonna take um a, a decade or two for offshore wind to really get up to full speed. So there's time to do some good studies and and find right. out to what extent this is a problem before moving ahead. And then I'm sure that we'll be able to find solutions if it does turn out to be a big problem. Yeah, you you make sure you, you map where the whales go and make some exclusion zones so that they're undisturbed in some of their favorite places i, I would assume uh again i'm not not a marine biologist but yeah. um it just seems like the answer is to, to study it and see if it's an issue and if it is come up with uh yeah controls so that we we don't end up making any um species go extinct or struggle unnecessarily yeah and i I was a little shocked by it too. It, it seems like the the research is being done in Europe, in the North Sea mostly, and the researchers were over, I think, in Germany where, that really kicked this thing off. Uh, and the Americans are just taking that research and expanding upon it, it sounds like. But it also uh, evolved, the discussion evolved into installations of wind turbines in the water that they didn't, they were concerned about the acoustics, obviously driving these pilings into the ocean floor, that there's whales in that general area and they have track whales in that area. They're actually sensing the clicking or the noises that the whales make so they can get a general sense as to where the whales travel, that uh, they were concerned that there are certain parts of the year where you probably didn't want to put in wind turbines in the water just because of the density of whales in that region. You didn't want to upset them or change their habit very much. Uh, and it looked like the whales were active in the wintertime, that they, they go south in the summertime, and that's when the great white sharks head up our way. So <laughs> are the whales are replaced by gigantic sharks, uh, that they're just trying to keep that sort of flow of these large sea creatures going and not to, to alter that at all. I, I don't know how you're going to manage that, because I don't think we know enough about it. And maybe I'm wrong. It just seems like there's just... It's a question that's been posed. They're trying to create these buffer zones. They don't know if the buffer zones are real or not yet. It, it's a huge question mark. And I, we go back to the California auction, and there's a lot of unknowns there. This is a huge unknown. There's 350 of these whales around. You, mm. you don't want to be responsible for ending that, that population because you put some wind, wind turbines in the water, right? 
No. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> does this get answered before there's before you start putting wind turbines in? I don't I don't know if it does. I think it's okay to put some wind turbines in before you've got a definitive answer, and that will be part of the way that you study. If it has an effect, it'll be really hard to to know for sure before you yeah. put anything in there. But I think you know what you've got to do is set up some research um ASAP and you know so California's got an extra 757 million dollars in their pocket compared to a couple of days ago so um you know I bet that that could buy quite quite a lot of whale research um and then start small and make sure that you're you're you know, make it a condition of the project development that they they have to include some monitoring activities. Um, and you know, th- th- yeah. of course, they're gonna they're gonna start out small anyway. Um, no one's gonna put in a whole g- gigawatt wind farm when it, they have never made it a floating offshore wind farm before, or you know, even for a fixed bottom. Every developer is going to start out small. There's also some wind farms, yeah. offshore wind farms already in the world, lots in Europe. You could monitor, uh, answer a lot of questions from monitoring there. You could at least, you know, um, find out the extent of that, of, you know, how how deep water gets turned up and how much and, um, you know, what the effect is on uh yeah, if there's more or less um, life in the in the water than yeah. in an area without a wind farm. I think that there's a lot that they can do, and I bet that the money to answer that would take to answer these questions is small compared to the the size of the industry. Um, I just think, <laughs> yes, it's good that yeah, this question has been be raised, and we should answer it. Uh, I'll be really surprised if the answer turns out to be something that is incompatible with, um, you know, developing offshore wind. I, I think it will probably help us to figure out how it should be done and where they should be located and, um, yeah, how many exclusion zones should be set up. Um, and, yeah, I think that they should should definitely do that. I definitely wouldn't want to see any uh, any whale go extinct because of, because of offshore wind. Right, and I didn't realise at the time that how much research had actually gone in to the whales and to the uh, the zooplankton that's running around off the off the coast of Massachusetts and New York, uh, so I started digging around a little bit deeper to see if other animal studies have been done onshore. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's one real close to us here in Massachusetts, actually just a couple of miles away from here, up in Vermont, uh, so right on the border. And there's, there was a, a series of wind turbines installed up there uh, five-ish years ago, six-ish years ago, and they have been doing a study on black mm-hmm. bears up there uh, of does the wind turbines change the behavior of black bears as it kind of trapes through the woods over there. And, and they've been doing that study for almost 10 years, a little over 10 years. And they're just going to be able to publish uh, some results in 2024. So uh, I started noodling that a minute, like, wait a minute. Okay. So it, we have onshore creatures that we see in the neighborhoods all the time, and we can see them wandering through the woods mm. all the time. Those are pretty easy to track. Bears aren't moving very far, typically. They tag them in the wintertime when they're sleeping, the poor bears. They wake them up and tag them, put a little collar on them, look like a bow tie sort of thing, and then they wander around and they and they, they beep and they, they find out where they go. Uh, but whales are a lot harder to track. You need a big, a really <laughs> big collar. put a collar on a whale, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it just is a lot more expensive, right? Because the whales travel thousands of miles where a bear is probably in the hundreds of miles. So it just seems like a much bigger task to go do. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. 
Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Rosemary, you know, if you've watched enough James Bond movies, you know that drilling a hole to the center of the earth is typically left up to the villains uh, that are <laughs> trying to hold <laughs> humanity hostage for a billion dollars. Uh, but evidently at MIT, they've thought this is a good idea because there's a company called Quaze Energy that's looking to do the same thing. So they back at MIT, this is a couple of years ago, they were playing around with millimeter wave radar to determine if they could drill with a with a radar it turns out you can now they they drilled initially drilled a two inch uh deep hole two inches wide and a piece of bustle uh, they're 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 <laughs> they're using uh millimeter wave energy to bore into the earth and they've done it in the laboratory so they can do it they haven't done anything massive scale yet but they're proposing to do this so the goal is that if they could drill deep into the Earth's core, God, it's like uh, an Austin Powers episode, <laughs> into the liquid magma of the Earth's core, they could get the heat out. And there's a lot of heat in the center of the Earth. So they could basically use make, create uh, a thermal generator. This is essentially what they're talking about. Now, look, the question comes in like, one, they have barely even started to, they haven't dug any serious hole. And they don't really have an ability to create a huge... Uh, millimeter wave energy system to do it. And the furthest that anybody has ever mechanically drilled down into the earth is about seven miles. And of course that happened in Russia. Why wouldn't it happen there? Right. <laughs> so does this Rosemary, does it make sense to go after this? It seems like this Quaze energy, which is based outside Boston is raising money. They seem to be active in a lot of fronts. Does, is this technology, hold a future or is it just too damn dangerous because i'm, I'm kind of in the too damn dangerous camp at the minute yeah maybe and i mean what have they managed 10 centimeters so far so i don't think that like next year or the year after yeah, we're going right. to be seeing 50 kilometer deep um <laughs> uh yeah drilling with this technology, I assume that it will be much longer than that, and I, I hope that it will be so that you can figure out what's going on because I know that some other forms of drilling for geothermal um, have been definitely linked to earthquakes um, that have caused a lot of damage. So, you know, it is high stakes. But on the other hand, I mean, geothermal right. is it's really tempting prospect because it is you know, it, it's very similar to nuclear in the way, you know, the kind of electricity that you get out of it. It's just it's like really, really, really constant and no emissions. And in the case of geothermal, you don't have any toxic waste or any, you know, problem with people not wanting to live nearby unless, right. of course, they're worried about earthquakes, in which case you probably get the same thing. <laughs> Um, and I know that a lot of right. a lot of countries that really struggle um, to find enough renewable resources to you know have a zero emissions economy in the future, 
they do have good geothermal resources like Japan springs to mind. I've been in the onsens there. They've, you know, there's plenty of right, sure. plenty of natural yeah. geothermal activity there. So you wouldn't even need this drilling technique um, in Japan because it's, um, you know, there's <laughs> there's heat quite close to the surface there. Active um, volcanoes. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, yeah, I think Indonesia is another one that, um, you know, it's difficult for them to just get enough wind and solar. And a lot of Asia has that problem. It's just too densely populated to be able to get all the, the wind and solar, enough wind and solar to power the whole country. Yeah, so mm. it makes it makes sense. I mean, I, I have been interested for a while in why Japan has been, you know, so pro, pro hydrogen, um, why not alternatives? And uh, to me, geothermal is the obvious one for Japan because, you know, they've got they've got the resource there. And I've heard that the reason why Japan isn't keen on geothermal is because the good resources are in the natural um, in their national parks, and they're just not interested in messing it up. And if you have a look at um, Iceland, for example, that that has developed a lot of geothermal, I think they get 25% of their electricity is from um, geothermal energy and probably even more of their total energy use because they can use it for heating as well. Um, it, it's changed the landscape, you know, it's mm. not, it's not impact free. It, it sounds like it should be because it's all underground. Right. But, um, yeah, you, you have to, right. yeah, it's a bit like oil or gas exploration, you know, you have to drill and find where's a good place. And, uh, you know, so you do some, some test drills and then it w won't come up exactly where you want to put your power plant and so you know there's pipes and stuff and just yeah it is it is disruptive right. and you wouldn't do it in the it's in the middle of a you know treasured national park um so yeah it's one of those things where it it makes so much sense on the face of it but when you actually consider like geothermal in general makes a lot of sense but if you start talking about any specific geothermal project then it makes less sense um so I do think we mm. we should be investigating options and new technologies, and especially ones that can you know reduce the risk of causing earthquakes or eliminate it. Um, and yeah, let's see how these guys go. I hope that they move slowly and with a lot of oversight because it does seem risky. And in a James Bond kind yeah, of way. Well, if you go to the website <laughs> like you and you say. look at the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you go if you go to the website and look at the companies that are associated with it, you go, hmm. Yeah, uh, those are some big names. <laughs> yes, it gets sort of gets James Bondy really quickly. Yeah. Like, what are they all up to? Uh, it it just it just seems like one of those things that can go wrong. You know, it 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 has that feeling of if they were able to do it and somebody wanted to use that technology for harm, they really could. Not to say you couldn't do other things, but that one seems like a super powerful piece of technology. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you would you would think you'd be careful about it. Even if, say they could do it, would we ever hear about it if they actually did it? A couple of weeks ago, Rosemary, just before Thanksgiving, so this is like middle of November, uh, I was out in sort of western New York State uh, looking at a wind turbine that had been damaged by lightning. And I stopped by and I knew that uh, State University of New York, Oswego, so they call it SUNY Oswego, had done some research about lightning strikes in that area. And the area I'm talking about is right on the edge of Lake Ontario. So anybody in Canada and sort of 
eastern part of the United States knows where that is. Uh, it's sort of north and a little bit east of Buffalo. So they have lightning strikes that come off in the in the snowstorms off of Lake Ontario onto shore, and they had been tracking them. And the SUNY Oswego researcher, Scott Steiger, who I had an opportunity to sit down with for an hour or so uh, when I was out there, had been researching snow coming off Lake Ontario and the lightning strikes that were happening from that those snowstorms. So the, the snow gets up in there, starts spinning around, creates friction, creates static electricity, static electricity turns into lightning. And they had tracked it long enough that the, the, that uh, a wind farm had been installed during the research period. So they knew where lightning strikes occurred pre-wind turbines and post-wind turbines. And it turns out, once the wind turbines were installed, there were a lot of lightning strikes on the wind turbines. And they, at the time, they didn't really think much about it, but it turns out that uh, these storms are triggering lightning strikes off the wind turbines. And when I was out a couple of weeks ago, they had a huge snowstorm. In fact, I just missed it. Thank goodness I just missed it. Got out of there just in time. They had about five feet of snow and over a, a, basically a two-day period. And they had a whole bunch of lightning strikes to wind turbines right off the coast of Lake Ontario again. Now, this time, though, uh, SUNY Oswego and Scott Steiger are ready because they had a, a, a Doppler radar and a lightning mapping array, which is a sort of a way of actually watching discharges in, in the sky and then making these little computer images of them. It's pretty cool. Uh, so th- they had all the technology and they had applied for a grant to go do that from the National Science Foundation. So they had all the technology set up just before that storm came in. So they captured probably one of the best snowstorm slash lightning events up in that region, and they had it fully instrumented. So they have a ton of data coming. Now, what we're seeing is the what we call upper lightning strikes happen, uh, what we think is upper lightning strikes, which seem to be the, the big thing. So when Rosemary is out designing de-icing system and blades, lightning strikes are a big deal. <laughs> And upper lightning strikes as the blades have got longer become more of a big deal because uh, some of the physics, the way lightning is working, uh, when you have lightning strikes in random places, they tend to trigger uh, lightning in the clouds. If And on Australia, do you have that kind of thing happen in the summertime, Rosemary, where you have these, the, you see these, these lightning events that, uh, that happen in the clouds only. So you see this kind of discharge roll through miles and miles of clouds. Is that something you have down there too? Uh, not that I know of, but I don't pay as close attention to lightning as you do probably. Uh, I, I mean, I pay I pay some attention um, and I'm definitely, <laughs> <laughs> definitely well, interested. Should... But, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't say for sure that we don't have that. <laughs> so researchers, we had Tom Warner on the podcast not too long ago and Tom had been doing a lot of research into this area and what seems to be the little um, trigger for all these wind turbines creating lightning strikes is there's a random lightning strike from the cloud to the ground now there's a discharge in the cloud so you see this this charge connect up via this lightning discharge a leader quote-unquote leader in the cloud when that leader happens and that discharge happens in the clouds all the wind turbines sitting underneath of it see that charge all of a sudden and they reach out so you get these what they call upward lightning strikes. You see these leaders, lightning leaders, which are just basically, they're just charge. <laughs> just a, a length of charge that reach up into the sky. And they have lightning strikes on wind turbines. In fact, most of the lightning strikes you see on these taller wind turbines are upward lightning strikes. 
uh, somewhere 80, 90 percent in some cases are these upper lightning strikes. So the question comes about, we don't know a lot about them. And, and we, Tom Warner's research group and Marcelo Saba down in Brazil was involved in a lot of that. They did a lot of research roughly 10 years ago. And it was just before everything kind of got kicked off. And, and wind turbines weren't that popular in the United States. There were some, but not like there are now. And they aren't the size they are now. Uh, I mean, Rosemary, you were involved in a lot of lightning testing while working at LM because of de-icing. Yes, <laughs> you're triggering painful did you memories. <laughs> see, did you? <laughs> yeah, flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> so you spent? Did you? You spent a good bit of time in the lightning. No, lab, I right? didn't. I didn't get to. During I that? was. Um, I was occupied in the in the factory, um, putting out other fires, um, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't get to. I. I I tried when I was in Boston. I was trying to go to your old, um, your old lightning lab uh, there in Massachusetts, but I didn't manage that either. So I, oh, lightning yeah, I still yeah. haven't managed to get into a lightning lab, um, but I will keep trying until until I get in there. And um, yeah, I want to see it. And I want to make a, a video on it as well. Yeah, well, you have to get you to a, a lightning lab. And, and- one of the things that we're trying to understand right now, and this is why I think between the two of us, you could probably figure out a lot of this, uh, you being a blade designer and me being a crazy lightning person. The There's a lot of lightning physics that we're just learning about or be, becoming more knowledgeable about because we've never had a rotating tall object like a wind turbine on the earth like this at these heights. Yeah. And uh, we haven't been able to document what's happening lightning wise until recently either. Yeah, so that was so frustrating trying to, you know, manage the design of a new system that had uh, strong implications for the lightning protection system. Just the fact that people don't really know. So you can design something that you think will be good, but if it's really new and hasn't been done before, you don't actually know. And um, yeah, so the lightning uh, test labs are are great, but they can't 100% replicate what's going out there in the field. I mean, you haven't got a full-size blade rotating. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course you, you know, you do it once or, or twice, you don't get the, every kind of lightning and every possible attachment point that you might get in reality. But I wanted to ask you something about these, um, this recent event where the turbines were instrumented. Does that mean that they, they definitively yeah. showed that it's definitely an upward strike from the turbine? So the turbine is definitely causing the lightning strikes, not mm-hmm. just, it's not just that oh, coincidentally there was lightning in the area, even if it seems statistically unlikely that it would so happen, so often happen on the wind turbines, they, they've actually gone further than statistics and just actually show and cause and effect. Yes. Right. So that's, that's very interesting because. Yeah. Well, Scott's Scott's. Yeah. Before I got involved with wind turbines and um, yeah. And lightning for that, I I had no idea that uh, structure can cause lightning. And I always wondered, you know, because they always say, you know, the, the tallest, the tallest structure in the area is the one that's going to get struck by lightning. And I just always wondered how does the lightning know that <laughs> that there is a tall structure down there? Because the lightning starts in a cloud. That's what, you know, that's what you yeah. understand when you're, you know, learning about it in school. Um, but actually it's the upward lightning that's right. causing the problems and, yeah, uh, I guess weakening the, it, you know, it's causing a, 
less resistance um, in the the air upwards. So and that's why you get the the strike hitting the the tall things. Yeah, you're getting right. Uh, the downward lightning strikes of which you mostly see if you're wandering around and there's a storm out you mostly see downward lightning strikes that's what you see and those are random events because i think you think about this you're thinking about this correctly if the lightning originates from the cloud it kind of wanders around the sky till it finds a place to Mm -hmm. attach if it sees a tall building it may jump over there but it's there's still a probability that you the person you know some distance away from the tall building Mm -hmm. are get struck it's it's sort of Mm -hmm. a random event it's going to find a tall object but not necessarily you see it all the time if you look at down at in Cape Canaveral where they launch rockets. You see lightning strikes that are near the rocket that's sitting on the t- on the pad out there. It, it just doesn't hit it. Well, sometimes it does though, you know, and it, so it's the probability. With upper lightning strike, that probability kind of goes away because the lightning event starts from the wind turbine or the rocket or the tall object. And it's just the way the physics are with those particular kind of storms. It, what we saw with this recent snowstorm off of Lake Ontario, and can I say thank God for Twitter? Because the, 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 the researchers at Vasala, who do all the lightning detection network in, in the States, put up a little um, image of the lightning strikes that happened on the coastline. There was a series of like a dozen wind turbines right along the coastline, and they were showing that those lightning strikes happened where those turbines were mm. during that snowstorm. Mm. Yes. So they were able to detect upward lightning and track it. So it's it, there is going to be a ton of research. I'm sure Scott and his crew over at SUNY Oswego are probably sort of thumbing through all that data. They're going to have a ton of data. So I can't wait for the research to come out. He told me it's going to take about six months before they can start releasing things. So maybe the summer, maybe the summer we'll have cool. some data. That would be cool because we need to know more about how lightning is attaching to wind turbines, yes. particularly in the States. We're going to put a lot of wind turbines yeah. up here. And it's Absolutely. such a big problem. Um, I mean, everywhere I see it a lot in Australia, just, you know, a lot of failures yeah. from lightning because blade designs have changed a lot and the science of, of lightning strikes is not not kept pace with the, the rate of change of technology development and people are flying a little bit, a little bit blind, you right. know, designing these systems that um, seem like they should be doing the job, but you just see a lot of failures and you always end up in fights between, you know, insurance companies and, <laughs> um, and <laughs> asset owners and also manufacturers, you, you, you know, you, it's always a big fight to see who the liability rests with. So it would be good to just get get that better under control and just you know have it be a reliable thing that that works every time like most other parts of a wind turbine. Yes. Well, the most difficult job in, in a wind turbine factory on the design side is de-icing <laughs> systems. I think just because the lightning thing isn't well known, and at, especially when you were there twenty years ago, I don't know how you're there. You weren't there. That long I, was, I was at university but, still twenty years ago. At this point, Rosemary, Thanks. you're like an old hand at. at Blade design. But you know how difficult that can be because anytime you want to put something conductive in the blade, everybody screams foul and says, oh, the lightning's going to take it out. And it probably yeah, will. They, they say you you may not put anything conductive in the blade. That's the normal the normal way that that's done because yes. you don't know what's going to happen. And you won't know until you've got, yes. you know, hundreds yeah. of them out there and <laughs> you've got enough, enough right. uh, you know, events that you can do some <laughs> statistics on it. It's... <laughs> It's very challenging. And it's not like other systems, you know, you could, the rest of the, it, it's one of the most important parts of the, the product that I was designing, but you know, the, the 
main part, the de-icing part, the part that heats the blade up, you put that out there and then you test it. And, you know, a few times I was unlucky where the, the test year might have been like really warm. So there weren't many good icing events, but at least you can, you know, turn it on and see right. if it gets warm and you're going to get something. But that turbine is highly unlikely to get struck by lightning in that in that year. And certainly even if it did get struck by lightning once, that wouldn't be enough to, you, you know, tell you if this was was a problem or not, because it, you know, you don't know where it's gonna attach. And so you put you yep. you have to put yep. them out there before you really know if you've got a good protection system in place. And that's just uh a real challenge that you might have hundreds, thousands of blades yep. out there before you start to get enough um, data to, you know, realize, oh, this doesn't behave the way that we expected. And it doesn't matter how many, you know, times you test in a lab or, right. you know, how carefully you follow the um, the standards, the design standards when you're making it. It's just lightning is, <laughs> yeah, the technology has moved move far away from the the science of of lightning and so yeah it's just right challenging yeah it has mm. you're absolutely right you're you, it's one of the most challenging aspects in blade design today and the physics that we didn't know 20 years ago and we're starting to apply them to wind turbines don't really apply as well as we thought mm. that they did and there's a lot about aerodynamics there's a lot about the way the lightning is occurring there's a lot of about uh, the lightning protection systems that don't play well together. Yeah. And we're working really hard to fix that because Rosemary, you're right. If we have to put a, a thousand blades out in service to figure out it doesn't work, it's really too late. That's but that's where we're problem. at now. Uh, I mean, there's heaps of, uh, <laughs> everyone yeah, in the is. industry knows that there are certain blades or certain manufacturers that are seeing way more failures than you should expect um, with their lightning protection system. And, you know, from manufacturers that in the past, they had very reliable systems in place. So it's not just that they, you know, don't know what they're doing or they don't care. It's that, you know, things are things are different now with these new types of blade structures with carbon fiber and with really yeah. long blades. And yeah, it's... Uh, it keeps yeah. keeps people like us busy though, doesn't it? And they're moving at two hundred miles an hour. <laughs> oh yeah, it keeps yeah. us super busy. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. yeah, serial defects are my 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 favorite. <laughs> Send all your serial lightning defects to care of Rosemary. Yeah, exactly. Loop, Australia. You just that's all you need. You put on an envelope, and it'll get to her. Yeah. So don't worry. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. We have Phil Totaro back from Intel Store. Check him out at intelstore.com. And we're going to be talking about PPAs and how products are designed to fit those PPAs. Phil, would you like to just describe some of the data you've unsurfaced? Sure. Thanks, Alan. Uh, what's interesting is we've been going through a cataloging process based on recently published data from FERC and Berkeley National Labs uh, in the United States. And they, they published a list of power purchase contracts, about 525 of them, uh, for uh, utility-scale wind projects. Um, there's about 1,300 wind farms in the U.S., so this doesn't cover all of them. And obviously, we know that there's some corporate power offtake uh, mixed in there these days. But the one thing that we noticed um, just by kind of visual inspection of the trend is that PPAs have been getting cheaper. 
And in some cases, they've been getting so cheap that they're below not just $20 a megawatt hour. Some of them have been below $10 a megawatt hour, if you can believe it. Uh, So that kind of begs a question. Um, You know, considering the fact that, you know, based on previous research we've done and published about kind of asset lifespan and the fact that in the United States, you've got like about a 10 year life cycle for a wind turbine before it, it, you know, falls off in performance. Um, Some of these projects that have a PPA below $20 a megawatt hour are not going to see a net positive return on capital on the project during the 20 year, the typical 20 year lifespan of a, a conventional project. Some projects are even seeing a 25-year PPA get executed, a 30-year PPA get executed. Um, And for some of these projects that are, you know, like $10, $11, $12 a megawatt hour, we did the math and you you literally have to have a 50-year asset life and you literally would have to repower your project three or four times during that asset life to requalify for the PTC in order to have that project turn a profit um, during now. You, that's also making the assumption that you're going to stay at a, at a 10 or $11 PPA, which is probably not going to be the case. But um, it, it, that, that brings up a whole lot of questions about the way assets are designed, implemented and operated. Sure. If you're operating at that low of a PPA, and hopefully you're getting production tax credits on top of that, because it seems like your margins are really slim. I'll give you the numbers from Massachusetts recently. Offshore wind with uh, with Commonwealth wind had a PPA at about $75 a Mm -hmm. megawatt hour. So anything below 10 seems incredibly low. Is that driven at all by the co-op nature of some of these energy systems? Like in, I know Nebraska is that way. I think Oklahoma can be that way. Is it is it a co-op situation or is it just independent power producers that are trying to feed the grid and just have a different model for generating revenue? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things. So you, you brought up a great point. The co-ops have been um, signing some of the, you know, on, on the cheaper side, not necessarily down at the like sure. 10, 10 or $11 level. However, yeah. um, sure. the other the other situation that the industry is facing right now is you see a huge uh, queue of interconnection requests at all the regional ISOs or pretty much all the regional ISOs in the United States. So what some independent power producers for wind energy are doing is they're getting a power purchase contract executed with what's called a community choice aggregator or some kind of power marketing company that's basically going to agree to buy the power and then resell it to consumers at a modest markup off of whatever the PPA is. So there's a couple of projects and I'll just give you some numbers. Skeleton Creek in Oklahoma, which I believe is a NextEra project, it's a 250-megawatt project, $9.94 PPA. Uh, Crossing Mm -hmm. Trails in Colorado, EDPR project for 104 megawatts, $9.62 PPA. And then the Mojave County Wind Farm in Arizona, uh, just under 300 megawatts. um, I forget who owns that one, but it's $8.64, excuse me, $8.64. Uh, $8.64 is absolutely dirt cheap. You're talking about getting into a price range now of hydropower where they've got, you know, they might sign a 30-year PPA at $5 or $6 a megawatt hour. 
but they've got a 70-year asset life. And they know that they're going to have to refurbish some of the components during that time frame. But if you've got, you know, imagine that you did have uh, an $8.64 uh, a megawatt hour PPA for wind energy, you are necessarily, again, even with the PTC, you're only getting that benefit for the first 10 years, of course. What the in Inflation right. Reduction Act does now is it gives you the opportunity to, uh, you know, replenish or repower or at least reblade or renacelle in your project after 10 years and requalify for a brand new PTC. But in this case, with PPAs being so cheap, you're not just doing a 40-year design life or a 50-year design life out of necessity because of the, the improvements in the, the reliability of the product. You're doing it because you're never going to see a net positive return on capital if you don't have an asset life that long. And if you don't repower your project three, you know, two, three, four times during its asset life. Right. Phil, this has been great to, to touch base on this. I, and I know we're going to have you back because there's just so many moving pieces to the financial market mm. and wind energy. So, Phil, Thanks for, thanks for coming back. Everybody, check out Phil Totaro and Intel Store, I-N-T-E-L-S-T-O-R.com, where you'll learn about wind energy and where it's headed. Thanks, Alan. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. We missed you, Joel. Come back soon. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Miss you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs>